Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. With me, as always, my lovely co-host, Nani Oxford. Hello. How are you doing, Kat? I'm doing wonderfully. It's the week of Pokemon! Pokemon week! Yay! I feel very old, but I'm very excited, too. Pika Pika. Pika Pika. We have a lot planned this week. Uh, we have a look back on Pokemania that took over. Uh, the U.S. in 1998. Nadia, do you remember where you, where you were when you discovered Pokemania? Yes, I do, actually. Um, I actually brought a toy Pikachu that my uh, my then fiancé, now husband, like bought for me. And nobody knew what the hell this thing was. This, yellow, this little yellow rat toy that I was showing everyone. They're like, what is this? Like, Pokemon had not yet quite taken off. Uh, but... Uh, I showed them, like, hey, it says Pikachu, right? And then, like, my friend's like, why is this rat saying Kikajou? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, Pokemania took off proper uh, in the, that summer when I was working at an amusement park at uh, Canada's Wonderland, it was called. And I was part of the quote-unquote ecology staff, a.k.a. janitors, and we just all had these Game Boys and we were all playing Pokemon. And since I worked in the kids' section of the park, like, they had the poker rap going like twenty four seven, on the on the UPA. Sounds like hell. Yeah, it kind of was. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I remember this the the first time I ever heard of Pokemon. I remember hearing that Pokemon is coming. It's this huge game, Pocket Monsters. It's incredible. And I thought, Pocket Monsters? Well, who gives a crap about monster in my pocket? In my <laughs> Why pocket, is everybody yes. going Gaga for monster in my pocket? Monsters in my pocket. <laughs> yeah, and I remember. I remember catching the first ep- uh, an episode of the anime because it had debuted here. Or it had a debuted on TV, and uh, if I recall correctly, it was uh, the battle on the Sa- the Saint Anne or the SSN or whatever. Oh, iconic! Yes, it, it was an iconic episode, and I, I remember being. I, I had no idea what the heck was going on, but I was amused by it. <laughs> a funny thing, I actually remember Canada got some of the episodes that were cut in the states. Like I distinctly remember. The episode where the shopkeeper pointed a, sh- a shotgun at Ash, and that was an episode with Dratini mm. in it. Yes, back when kids' shows could have guns in them, but yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I don't remember like particularly liking the anime, but I apparently liked it enough to ask for it for Christmas, Aww. and it changed my life. Aww. No joke. Yeah, so you should go check out the site. We're gonna have a lot of coverage about pokemon throughout the rest of the week and we're actually going to be doing a thing here on the podcast uh, i don't think it's particular spoilers to say that uh this week's top 25 rpg entry is a pokemon game which pokemon Who's it's probably pokemon? in the title so <laughs> yes exactly who is that pokemon but first uh nadia there was some interesting news last week uh-huh. another retro console is coming it's not from Nintendo. Right. Yeah, no, it's uh it is a PlayStation Classic. And the it's funny the way I w- I actually found out that this was happening because I was off that day uh was someone posted on their Facebook a picture of a PlayStation Classic and said like, "Hey, uh, Nintendo, can I borrow your homework?" Okay, yeah, but just change it a bit to make it look like it's not yours and it's not mine. So, that's how I learned about uh the PlayStation Classic. Yeah. And so this is, I mean, it's pretty much the same as the NES Classic. Uh, they have announced, I believe, two RPGs so far. Yes. One of them is Final Fantasy VII, and the other one is? 
Wild Arms, and I am excited about that because I love Wild Arms, although I am eager to see what people think of it in the here and the now, because it's not the best-looking RPG. <laughs> it never was, and it still isn't. You are a huge Wild Arms proponent. I am. I think most people only know Wild Arms from its super boss opening cutscene. Mm-hmm. So do you want to explain why it's so awesome? Uh, it's a very, I will admit, it's a very retro RPG, very uh, turn-based. I think even a little more archaic than Final Fantasy VII was. Certainly didn't look as exciting as Final Fantasy VII at the time. But it's a it's a very unique setting where... Um, very unique. It's a, a western planet called Filgea. And um, basically, it, it's dying. Like the, the planet is experiencing rapid desertification, which now that I think back on it is Fantasy Star IV's premise. But uh, this isn't very sci-fi. This is very Western, where like the hero run, walks around with a gun, and that actually kind of makes him uh, taboo because guns are considered taboo because there was like a war against metal demons. It was a, it's a very anime slash Western mix, and I find that extremely interesting. And uh, Actually, there is quite an element of sci-fi in there now that I think about it. There's like an alien race. It's just, it's one of those games you play it and you never really forget it. I remember, the. I mean, for me, the the opening cutscene is mostly what sticks with me. It, it, because you get that amazing, uh, that whistling Western song, song with yeah. um, beautiful animation. And of course, this is a very new thing to video games at the time, the opening cutscene, yeah, right? That's actually something I wrote about um, in, I forget what the, what I was writing about in particular, I think just PlayStation nostalgia in general saying how back then games had like these beautiful anime cutscenes, uh, not only because they were like new and exciting, but because they served as the perfect capture mode for game stores back in the day when games like weren't prescribed, Hey, you have to run the CD of our corporate footage for infinity Instead, they would choose a game and they'd put it like on their store monitor or put it like you know in the window. And I remember one uh, computer store uh, in Toronto put up Wild Arms, so they had that intro, that beautiful uh, anime intro going, and that just made a real impression on me. You could tell that the developers were still new to the whole concept of polygons and 3D graphics and that kind of thing because. This game, on the face of it, for most of it, looks like a 16-bit RPG. Uh, The exploration is all in traditional sprite base. And the the sprites are pretty good. At least that's what I remember. And it has a really good soundtrack, too. Oh, it has an amazing soundtrack. I still listen to it. Yeah, it has a phenomenal soundtrack. And then when you're in the actual battles, it shifts to some really ugly polygons. (laughs) polygons are so... And not only that, um, the enemies all, like, share, like, three polygons each, maybe... And um, what's really kind of unfortunate is you have guardian summons in the game, which uh, are very much like summons in Final Fantasy games, except uh, Final Fantasy VII's summons just look like Oscar-winning computer graphics next to what you get in Wild Arms, which are just the most kind of dismal-looking monsters ever. And it's they really improved it in subsequent games, but I love it for trying. This is a good opportunity to kind of reassess the PlayStation 1's kind of RPG legacy, and I think we'll be able to do that more easily, especially when we see what games end up being included in this collection. There will be 20. Yes. But so far, we've only seen the two RPGs in addition to, I forget what else has been confirmed. Flash, Tekken 4, and I forget. 
yeah. So I, I I think that you're a little higher on the PlayStation 1's RPG legacy than I am, Nadia. I am, and that's something if you want to go back on the site and read about it. Um, I actually said the PlayStation Classic, I think, is going to have a harder time selling itself compared to like the SNES Classic uh, because, let's face it, if Sony loads that thing up with 3D games, I don't see anyone having a fun time playing those. Most of those have been revised, revamped, put onto newer systems with better controls. Um, but the RPG legacy of the PlayStation 1 is still fantastic enough that I think that if they lean on it a little heavily, they'll have a pretty good system to sell. So we got Final Fantasy 7, 8, and 9. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, I suppose... Um, Vagrant Story, Final Fantasy Tactics, we go into Symphony of the Night if you want to include that, uh, Tactics Ogre if you want to include that. Uh, what else would you say like really constitutes, really makes the PlayStation 1 a great RPG machine? Uh, I would say Lunar Silver Star Story would be a great addition. I mean that was a Saturn game. If no, I, a, it started out, no, it started out on the Sega CD. Yeah, but there, no, the PlayStation uh, Collection, or uh, I think it was, was um, I know a lot of people who love it. I didn't get to play it myself, but it's one of those games that I look back on very, very fondly. Yeah, I actually never got a chance to play that one. It's it's supposed to be pretty great, and um, yeah, I've always wanted to get more into Lunar, but I never really had the chance because, as you say, it was really more of a Sega Saturn's. I saw it like a hundred times, or actually the Sega CD, but I saw it like a hundred times at the store <laughs> and I always meant to buy it, but I never had enough oh, money. Oh, that's too bad. You missed out. I heard, uh, I saw someone on Twitter, I'm, I'm not taking this seriously, but I think they were serious. Uh, they want to see Legend of Dragoon on there. Well, of course, a, a lot of people want to see Legend of Dragoon on there because a lot of people see it as one of the best RPGs on the, the PlayStation. But as I said in Slack, I, lo- I want it to be on... I want it to be in the collection, and I expect it will be, because if I recall correctly, yeah, it's a Sony's, Sony. It's either a Sony first-party or Sony second-party game. And if it ends up being on there, we can all find, we can all remember together how, what a bad game it is. <laughs> See, I, I never played it, because even like the reviews at the time were like, okay, this game is like some pre-Final Fantasy VII shit, and we're, it was like, what, the year 2000 by that point or something? Yeah, it was. The graphics were really not good. Uh, I, they obviously put a lot of invested most of their resources into the uh, sorry they invested most of their resources into the actual dragoon transformations. Mm-hmm. The overworld stuff was better than Final Fantasy VII, but by this time we had had Final Fantasy VIII, right. Nine, Vagrant Story, whole bunch of games that looked really good for the time on the PlayStation and frankly Legend of Dragoon just wasn't cutting it. The story wasn't that great. The battle system was just mm-hmm. okay. It had kind of this timing based system that was really annoying to pull off with yeah. input delay. <laughs> Not my favorite, but Breath of Breath of Fire yes. 3 is on the PlayStation and I know that's a I favorite would love of to yours. I see Breath of Fire 3 on there because um, I Another thing I mentioned in my article is Sony is going to have to rely on not just on the strength of their RPGs, but also RPGs and games that you can't really get anywhere else. And Breath of Fire 3, you can download it for your Vita, but uh, you're not going to find the original PlayStation game that easily. Uh, Yeah, no. Something that occurs to me is that a lot of the best uh, games on the PlayStation 1, yeah, I mean... There are the square. There was the Square Enix right. output, but stuff like Lunar, 
and Grandia were perhaps better on other consoles. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, Grandia is coming. That's that's getting a, a revamp very soon, isn't it? Yes, it's Grandia yeah. 1 and 2 so no HD. The, uh, the interesting thing is, I asked them if the it was going to be PlayStation or Saturn, and they said kind of neither, because they're basically redoing the original and taking elements of both. Were the games different on the PlayStation versus Saturn? Yeah, the PlayStation 1 version had some uh, technical compromises. That was often mm-hmm. the case with games on the PlayStation 1, uh, especially when it came to yeah, 2D definitely. graphics, which I don't believe Grandia was a 2D game, but it definitely... Uh, I mean, because the Saturn was so different, porting things over from it was a little different, yeah, a little difficult. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. So I suppose I'm going to sound like a broken record when I talk about like what game I would love to see on the PlayStation Classic, um, but I would love to see Fi- Valkyrie Profile. No, I totally agree with that. I think I mentioned that in my article as well. Uh, that is, you want to talk about the premier example of a game you just can't find anywhere else. Yes, that is it. I mean, yeah, like you said, you can't find it anywhere else, and it's not been on any of the stores. Uh, It's a Square Enix property, so I don't know why it couldn't make it over there. And if there was one game that could make me even consider buying a PlayStation Classic, a system which I will undoubtedly have most of the games for already if I want to actually revisit them, it would be that one. because. Valkyrie Profile is impossible to find. Uh, I don't think I, the iOS port of the PSP game really counts. You can't find it on any of the eShops or PSNs or whatever. And it's always been too bad because while I think that, like many PlayStation games, it doesn't entirely hold up, I mm-hmm. do think it's worth revisiting in many respects because it does a lot of really interesting things. Yeah, that's uh, if you give me a game like that and maybe a few others that are kind of similarly rare, I could see the PlayStation Classic definitely being worth a purchase. Uh, otherwise, as Katie described it, for now it just looks like another box to play Final Fantasy VII on. Yeah, I mean, that's what people associate the PlayStation 1 yeah. with for the most part, you know, with a handful of other games, maybe Parappa the Rapper. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't, mean saying, I wouldn't mind seeing Prop or the Rapper on there if, as long as they can deal with the lag that kind of plagues the ports to other systems. The PlayStation had such a flood of games, and so many of them were so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at, and so many of them are so flawed, like Xenogears. Everybody loves Xenogears, but that game was like half-finished. Yeah, I was thinking, will they include Xenogears on this on this little PlayStation box? But then I'm like, I'm betting they will. Un- I would, I would definitely give it a try if it was on the PlayStation Classic. But then people are going to remember, like, what was it? The, the entirety of Disc Two was mostly watching people talk. It's like eighty hours. That's a long game. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that. And I'm playing Dragon Quest Eleven. When I think of the PlayStation, I think not just of Final Fantasy Seven, Eight, Nine. I think of like. Ark the Lad. Oh, I remember Ark the Lad, yeah. Star Ocean, the second story, which was not that good a game. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Threads of Fate. Yeah, all these games have just kind of got lost in the ether. Yeah, I mean, there was also Chrono Cross, uh, the flawed sequel, the flawed successor to Chrono Trigger. 
I would definitely love to see that on the PlayStation Classic. I would probably buy it for Chrono Cross, even though I have Chrono Cross on my Vieta. I don't care. I don't think I would ever play Chrono Cross again. I suppose I the only it. thing that would be interesting to me is now that I've finished Chrono Trigger, it would be kind of interesting to go back and like revisit it. Yeah, that's it, it, prepare to be depressed if you do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of understand where the the basic plot is, especially with the additional stuff that was added to the, I want to say the DS version of the game. It was, yeah. They tried to link the two with cutscenes and stuff, and the cutscenes were actually really cool, but um, it still just doesn't really mesh in my mind. No, it doesn't really mesh in mine either. Uh, I think that when it comes to the PlayStation, I mean, Dragon Quest Seven is on this thing, and Dragon Quest Seven's one of the worst Dragon Quests. And it was redone, and it was like, it wasn't flawless on the 3DS, but it's definitely a lot better on the 3DS. If you ever want to give Bob PTSD, just bring up Dragon Quest Seven. Oh, I don't, I don't say Dragon Quest Seven in his presence. He gets very angry about it. So when it comes to the PlayStation's RPG legacy... I think that some of it hinges on just how, I mean, like a lot of nostalgia, right? People remember how amazing it was at the time, how amazing it was to see those cutscenes and everything. Uh, People remember that it was the first time that JRPGs really became popularized here in the U.S., and how all of a sudden stuff like Final Fantasy VII was all the rage. How companies were scrambling to localize their little RPGs that would never have come out here before mm-hmm. as quickly as possible. Uh, that the that it was it was a sea change. Um, as our guides editor Tom Ori said, it was the first time that a video games could be kind of cool. Like yeah, the PlayStation really was. was the PlayStation was cool in a way that the SNES and the Genesis simply were not. When I think of the Genesis, I think Bone Storm, <laughs> Thrill Ho. No, the Genesis. You're right. Um, for a while, it was very cool to have a Genesis, but uh, kids kind of grew out of that frame of mind very quickly. Yeah, it was the early '90s wannabe 14 year old. We're hardcore. Exactly. Look at all the blood. Yeah. Mortal Kombat so much better on the Genesis. Actually, it's better on the SNES. Because, no, it has, this one has blood. No, it's, no, it was better on the Genesis. Come on, Nadia. Uh, I, I'm not a Mortal Kombat fan either way, so I have no right to talk. That's the funny thing is that the Genesis uh, did have a lot of things to legitimately recommend it, including sports games, shoot-em-ups, a great arcade legacy, did things uh, very differently from the mm-hmm. SNES and stuff like Fantasy Star was legitimately great, as it was, yeah. which is why Fantasy Star 4 ended up on our top 25 RPG list. And then yeah. the PlayStation came along and uh, I mean, it just, it changed everything, but just because it changed everything, I think doesn't necessarily mean that it still holds up today. Like if I look back at the SNES and I look back at the PlayStation 2, uh, I think that the system, the generations bracketing the PlayStation are, I mean, I would rather play games on either of those systems than almost anything on the PlayStation. Well, I don't have much nostalgia for the PlayStation 2 because I didn't really get one until very much later in the generation. But I see what you're saying because, frankly, a lot of PS1 games, except for like the sprite-based ones, like Symphony of the Night, are just uglier than Sin. 
They really are. Uh, I mean, people were pointing out to me on Twitter that there could be attractive PlayStation 1 games. But mm-hmm. I was I, like, I kind of shrug a little bit. <laughs> yeah, like I was saying, um, I don't know what 3D games Sony plans to put on this thing other than, say, Jumping Flash, which was a great little game in its own right. But do we really want to play Jumping Flash in a post-Mario Odyssey world? I don't know. I, I, I think that as long as they put Final Fantasy VII on this thing, you know, and mm-hmm. Wipeout, Parappa the Rapper... And maybe some other games, like it's going to at least draw attention. Maybe Spyro. Spyro will probably be on it. Yeah, I was thinking about like the audiences that tend to go for these things. Like it's very much uh, this kind of thing you would see at Walmart and say, oh, I remember Final Fantasy VII. I, w- I want that right now. Uh, although the Sony Classic uh, is a PlayStation Classic is definitely more expensive than the SNES Classic or the NES Classic to the point that I wonder if it's really the kind of impulse buy that either of those systems are some more playstation rpgs legend of mana that game breaks my heart why does it break your heart nadia because it's so so beautiful and so slow and boring (laughs) i saw that like a hundred times at target and i never bought it and i'm glad i did it yeah like i remember a, a penny arcade uh comic where I think it was Legend of Mana was talking to uh, Gabe from the shelf saying, hey, hey, buy me. And Gabe's like, I don't know, I'm with Legend of Mana. Everyone says you're really bad. No, no, buy me, buy me. <laughs> and he was right. Yeah, it's just, gor- what a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous game. Oh. Another game, Legend of Legea. Oh, No. Eh, I hate that game so bad. That's the game I, Why do you I, will hate forever, it? I will forever bear a grudge against that game for. I just remember one scene in that game where, uh, well, first of all, the hero is named Vaughn, which is, if you live in Toronto, that name will annoy you instantly because Vaughn is the city north of Toronto, and their literal slogan is the city above Toronto. And I'm like, you little pricks. So that's number one. I have a hero named Vaughn, so that's, that's strike one. Number two, there's this real naive sort of, woman character who asks Vaughn what a pimp is. I'm like, am I reading this right now? Number three. Yes, you are. (laughs) I just remember it being a really slow, boring game uh, with an okay soundtrack and an interesting premise that actually just rips off Stephen King's The Mist, like, one for one. But hey, may as well rip off from the best like everyone else did at the time. Uh, Also, someone broke into my apartment once and they stole, like, Suikoden 2, Breath of Fire 3, the original Final Fantasy 7, Symphony Night without that ugly green best-selling bar on the on the spine, and they left Legend of Legea, and I was so mad. Saga Frontier. I never played that. I did. You like it? It was very pretty, mm-hmm. but I, I don't have much else to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> it was my first real introduction to kind of hardcore JRPGs, uh-huh. and I don't think I was ready for it. Uh, yeah, Saga is a little bit on the hardcore side. Persona. Oh, now there's an interesting uh, uh, idea. I remember, though, like, uh, just Persona, thinking back and thinking how weird it sounded, but it wasn't until Persona 3 that I really started to hear about Persona. You know what I mean? I don't think Persona or Valkyrie Profile or games like that will be on the 
PS1 because even though it has such a rich RPG legacy, mm-hmm. I think that they're not going to want to completely overload it. Yeah, exactly. Much like the SNES Classic. SNES Classic had like four or five RPGs of various sizes, and you just had to kind of pick and choose. If I were, I would guess that the ones we're going to get are Final Fantasy VII, Wild Arms for some reason, uh, Legend of Dragoon. Yes. Because Sony's going to want to include one of their own games and they won't have to negotiate with a third party over it. And Parasite Eve. Oh, Parasite Eve is an interesting addition. You're right. Uh, Wild Arms, by the way, I'm pretty sure Sony published that so they can just republish it without a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Anything that was published by Sony, I think they're going to snatch up. So I I could see that. I I could see maybe Vagrant Story or Xenogears making the cut. Yeah. Um, both either of those would be. A I would be legitimately addition. shocked if Valkyrie Profile made it on. So would I, which is a shame because I, I would love to see it on there. But Vagrant Story would be an interesting addition because uh, that was a hard game. That's a very dense game to kind of understand. And if you do understand it, it's fantastic. But uh, I remember getting very frustrated with it when I was younger. Tales of Destiny. Never played it. A friend of mine freaking loves tales of destiny and would never shut up about it <laughs> i never i was never a big tales fan but it's been a while since i played any of them i think that tales of destiny is better than a lot of the tales games that have come since right it has an appealing 2d graphical style it's fun in kind of an anime way and it's not overbearing like some of the later games right right no i never played it Vandal Hearts. Remember Vandal oh, Hearts? I remember the I remember the um I remember the title definitely. I also remember some magazine or other saying how it was like a real mature RPG and I think it was M rated actually now that they think about it. From Mission 3, which I think that a lot of hardcore uh mecha fans would love to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was never really into that sort of like I never really followed Front Mission very well, but what about you? You're into mecha. Do you like Front Mission? Yeah, Front Mission's really good. I love the customization of the actual mechs, and I, mm-hmm. I've i always been sad that it never really got a fair shake over here. I think that compared to a lot of mecha, it's actually much more Western-leaning as it resembles Battletech more than, say, Gundam. Right, right. Interesting. Brave Fencer Musashi. Nah, I never played that, but I heard really good things about it. I don't know if it's any, actually any good. I heard that it was uber simple. Yeah, I think I heard that too, but it was it's a, kind of an action RPG, isn't it? Yes, I believe so. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Bushido Blade made it. Oh god, that's a that's a blast from the past, isn't it? It's this could end up being very square heavy. Definitely. I think I remember my husband telling me that he played a lot of that uh He's 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 like one of those people who likes Square but like for all the weird ass non-RPG stuff like when I went to visit uh, Square Enix last winter he was like ask them if they're going to do another rad racer. I'm like why in God's name when they do another rad racer? He's like just ask them. I never did ask them. He's still mad at me. Metal Gear Solid will yeah, definitely be on it. That. Yeah, I would yeah. be legitimately shocked if Metal Gear Solid and Symphony of the Night were not on this. Yeah, I would too. Uh definitely maybe less for Symphony of the Night but Metal Gear Solid definitely I'd be shocked. So, I mean, you can pretty much guess most of the games that are going to be on there. Parappa the Rapper is totally going to be on there. FF7 is totally going to be on there. Um, Metal Gear Solid Symphony of the Night will be on there. We've already said FF7. I don't expect more than one Final Fantasy. I think Xenogears or Vagrant Story will end up being on there. Parasite Eve has a really good shot. Um, 
And you know, when I'm looking at, when I say, when I list out these games, I go, yeah, these games are pretty good. <laughs> Dang, uh, that's a solid collection right there. Yeah, um, doesn't sound too bad, especially uh, Symphony of the Night. What I, what I really want is Super Robot Wars Alpha Guide N. I'm afraid that's not going to happen, Kat. I'm just going to have to mod the PlayStation Classic and put it on there. <laughs> you know, I've, I have a, an SNES Classic and an NES Classic, and I haven't modded either one of them. Do you think Resident Evil or Resident Evil 2 is more likely to be on there? Oh, shoot. I would say the original Resident Evil, because Resident Evil 2 is like getting a remake soon, and I don't know. What, which one is I more think, popular? I think 2 is more likely. 2 is the more polished, the better, yeah. the better of the two, the more popular. I feel like the series really came to its own with Resident Evil 2. This, uh, it doesn't matter so much for Resident Evil 2, but uh, this, this system doesn't have analog controls, which I think is a real detriment. I, oh yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Uh, I though at the time I didn't really I had a dual shock with analog controls, but I never used them because I didn't really understand them. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't really understand the concept of analog controls until I picked up until I picked up an Xbox controller and was horrified. <laughs> what about you? Didn't play like Mario with uh, Mario sixty four? The N sixty four controller was very different. It had the little thumbstick, and I was still a little confused by that at the time. Right, right. I had practically broke it trying to spin uh, Bowser. <laughs> I can see that happening. That wasn't the the most well-constructed controller, so yeah. Yeah, I can see that happening. It's one of the worst controllers ever made. Yeah, the concept is revolutionary, of course, but the, uh, well, look how many people broke their, their uh, controllers playing Mario Party. The concept was revolutionary, but it was useful only for, like, certain games. Like, the Word. concept of having... Exactly one thumbstick, and then the the fact that you were holding it in such a way that you were only using half of it yeah. <laughs> it's still bizarre to me. It is very strange. And uh, the D pad. The best thing about it was the uh, the Z trigger. Yeah, yeah, the Z trigger was amazing, and um, which allowed you to lock on to enemies. That was about it. Yeah, like, like yeah, I'm trying to play Goldeneye on that thing. Oh, Are you kidding no, me? Thank you. No, it was. Or you had to, to look around. You had to stop. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember like we would be playing there was the one map that had the two floors and then you could look down mm-hmm. into the, the bottom floor and I, invariably I'd be running along and I would see somebody staring down looking for somebody to come running through and I would just shoot them <laughs> as they were staring because I mean like you couldn't just look down really quickly you had to hold the button and then look down right oh man sounds like my brother playing laser tag with kindergartners God, video games in that time, they're so terrible. Yeah, oh, but that God. controller was definitely... It was a really awkward time, put it that way. was definitely engineered for Nintendo's games, and everyone else was like, what about us? And Nintendo's like, meh. They're like, okay, so we'll go to the PlayStation, see ya. What do you think of the PlayStation Classic? What games, RPGs, do you want to see it? And what do you think of its RPG legacy? I'm sure we'll talk about this more once the PlayStation Classic actually comes out in December. But in the meantime, yeah, send us our thoughts uh, on the show notes or to cat.bailey at usgamer.net. All right, Nadia, let's move on to the top 25 RPGs. All right, continuing on with our top 25 RPG countdown, let's look at number 14 on our list, which is a Pokemon game. See if you can recognize the music track from this game.
Yep, number 14 on our list is Pokemon Gold and Silver, which for my money is the best generation of Pokemon, which ironically was also the generation that I missed, Nadia. Yeah, um, I have to be fully honest, I didn't really play all of Gold and Silver until I got uh, Soul Silver, but that said, I do very much appreciate what it did for Pokemon. Um, this was the game if I'm not mistaken, that really established Pokemon as a franchise that was going to stick around for good because it, it was just such an improvement over the first game. And the fact that you go back to the original Kanto, uh, that blew a lot of people's minds at the time. I felt like this was, it felt a little like a last hurrah for the series at the time that it came out because <clears throat> when Pokemon Gold and Silver came out in 2000, I mean, Pokemania was definitely kind of petering out a little bit. Remember when Pokemon the movie 2000 came out? Nobody cared very much. And it was yeah. still a thing. It just wasn't as much of a thing because everybody who had been kind of bonkers for it back in 1998, like yours truly, uh, were kind of out on it by that point, which is why I ended up missing out on Pokemon Gold and Silver until mm -hmm. roughly... I think that's the reason I missed out on it too. I didn't pick it up until... I think 2003 because that was, uh -huh. and that was actually after Ruby and Sapphire had come out. But I, I think I picked it up on a road trip. I picked up crystal on a road trip and I ended up playing it then. And uh, how did you like it compared to uh, just going back to it after the third generation? What did you think? Uh, I really liked the music at the time and I actually really liked the art and I thought, mm -hmm. Because at the time, Ruby and Sapphire was actually felt like a bit of a step back compared to uh, Crystal, Gold, and Silver. Because yeah. Crystal had animated characters where Ruby and Sapphire did not. Uh, That's right, yeah. Crystal still had really good music. Uh, it had certain features that Ruby and Sapphire didn't, actually. Uh, for mm -hmm. example, Ruby and Sapphire did not have a day and night cycle. Oh, that's right. And that was like a, a very big addition for Gold and Silver. Yeah, it was a really weird thing to not have a day-night cycle in Ruby and Sapphire because it made it really hard to evolve time-dependent Pokemon. It was a huge pain, actually. Which is funny because there was an eternal clock in Ruby and Sapphire, okay. but it was used for the berries. <laughs> How did you, like, evolve, like, time-sensitive Pokemon if there was no night? Uh, to be honest, I don't remember. But I feel like it was still dependent on the clock. It just was uh -huh. a matter of there was no quote unquote day or night. Not right. Yeah, that's that sucks. Day and night did not come back until uh, Diamond and Pearl. But, mm -hmm. but Ruby, uh, I had to think about this one long and hard, Nadia, because mm -hmm. looking at the whole history of Pokemon, uh, I, I think Emerald is one of the best Pokemon games ever ever made. It introduced the Battle Frontier. It had it was so replayable. It was so brilliant in so many respects. I really loved a lot of the Pokemon, and more importantly, Ruby and Sapphire was when the Pokemon as we know it today really got started. Uh huh. Whereas Gold and Silver was more the end of an era because it connected directly to Red and Blue. It was a right. direct follow-up to Red and Blue. Uh, you could yes. transfer Pokemon from one to the other. But after Gold and Silver going into Ruby and Sapphire, there was a definitive cutoff because the systems mm -hmm. were totally different in Ruby and Sapphire. They added things like traits, abilities, personalities and right. that were not in Gold and Silver. And so there was a hard cut in Ruby and Sapphire. Uh, it, you could not 
import your collections over to Ruby and Sapphire, which pissed off a lot of the people at the time. <laughs> That's right. So yes. as a consequence, gold and silver feels like gold and silver, red and blue feel like their own thing kind of over in the corner. No, you're right. Definitely. It's uh, kind of like how the Dragon Quest games all have like these little mini arcs inside of them, like one, two, three, four, five, six. But yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, yeah. So, and then I thought, okay, well, what about platinum? Well, platinum's a little slow. I but, never really played platinum. And then I thought really hard about black two and white two because people who have listened to mm-hmm. this podcast will know that black two and white two. I I've often extolled them as the best Pokemon, or at least the ones that I yes. thought were really in the sweet spot of. I liked the competitive meta game. I liked all of the extras. I, I thought stuff like the Pokemon World Tournament were just outstanding. I loved a lot of the monsters. I liked Or, <clears throat> or not Or, whatever the 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 region was called in that one. And uh, and then X and Y and Sun and Moon also exist. So, <laughs> so like I just I look at Gold and Silver. I'm like, well, the competitive meta game at the time was pretty slow, but mm-hmm. perhaps this is the one yeah yeah i i honestly agree with the the choice i definitely cannot defy it because i I think i would have chosen it for the reasons that i that i already told you uh it's funny though we mentioned how it was kind of the end of pokemania at the time or at least it was pettering out uh the game came out when i started college and there was one poor soul who was playing the game and just like everyone laughed at him and said no one cares about pokemon anymore and I remember he was showing me golden, like golden silver, and I was like, "Wow, this game actually looks really good." Yeah, and no, it was one of the better looking. Uh, it was one of the better looking games on the Game Boy Color. Uh, notably, Golden Silver did not have animated characters. That was a Crystal thing. Crystal also introduced yes. uh, having a female character. Oh, that's right. Yes, it did. But did you know that Pokemon Gold and Silver was in development before Red and Blue even came out here in the U.S.? Oh, really? Yep. It oh, was no, in... actually, yes. Now that you mentioned no, it. No, wait, no, I did know that. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the reason I, I know that now is because um, I remember when I was watching the anime, going back to it, I saw the first episode, and I, I saw, like, Ash at the end of that episode sees uh, Ho-Oh, who's... Um, yes, the, but uh, that was before they developed the character of Ho-Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. They, they did that in retrospect of, oh, well, let's have that Pokemon, too. Right, okay. But Gold and Silver started development in 1997, which was a year after it came out in Japan. It was meant to follow up from Red and Blue, or Red and Green, I suppose, relatively mm-hmm. soon after. It was shown for the first time at Space World in 1997. Right. But uh, the Pokemon Game Freak, which was quite small uh, at the time... Ended up getting really bogged down by a number of things, including localizing the game for the U.S. and also developing Pokemon Stadium, which Pokemon Stadium is a it was its own weird case. I don't even think it had all of the Pokemon in that one. No, the the uh, the first version that came out in Japan didn't. I think our version, which was technically Pokemon Stadium Two in Japan, that one I think had all 151. Yes. So uh, they were being stretched pretty thin. They only had four programmers available for oh, Gold wow. and Silver. And that's why it ended up being delayed by quite a bit. And, of course, famously, it was saved by who? Satoru Iwata. 
He yes, he it. did. Yes. He, uh, he brought so Toru Wada is who we can thank for uh, saving gold and silver, or at least the gold and silver that we knew, and being able to cram Kanto yeah. into that tiny cartridge. God, that guy was amazing. But gold and silver, of course, added 100 Pokemon to the mix of the original bunch, and it shifted over to a new region, Johto, which yes. uh, if Kanto was meant to be Tokyo, then Johto was supposed to be Kyoto. Yes. What do you think of the Johto region, Nadia? I always like Johto region. First of all, I like saying its name. It's a really cool name, Johto. Uh, but I was just thinking about my favorite Pokemon from that era, and I'm thinking, you know what? I really like Miltank. Really? For some, I, I just always liked Miltank, just this real solid kind of bastard Pokemon who will heal itself. <laughs> it's a cow. <laughs> it is a cow, yes. And its gym really, uh, really tormented a lot of people. I believe it's Whitney. Whitney, that's it. Wil- Whitney's Miltank. Just say that to any like uh, Gen Xer, and they'll fall on the floor shuddering. Because nobody had had to deal with a normal type gym at that time, right. and. Miltank, Miltank was so difficult to take down because it had crazy, like, strong defenses for the time. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't have a fighting type, which I think a lot of people discounted fighting types in the original yeah. Pokemon Red and Blue. Definitely. Because they were so weak to psychic types, and psychic types were extremely strong. Right. So you probably didn't catch a fighting type, in which case you would meet Miltank, and Miltank would effortlessly absorb all of your attacks and heal itself. And then it would use rollout, and rollout would really f up your team. <laughs> it sure did. Oh, I wonder if they've nerfed Miltank. They must have by now. I always liked Johto because it has a really strong Japanese vibe, and not, and it's not embarrassing like the fifth generation region, which whose name currently escapes me, like. The one that's like, yeah, cowboys and hot dogs in America, yeah. Was that Unova? That's that's Unova. Yeah, that's the name of the gym <laughs> or the name of the region. Yeah. Like Kalos was, ugh, that's the worst region. Kalos and was, like it was what? Which which game was Kalos? I forget. Kalos was X and Y. It's the one that's in Europe. Oh, that one was okay. Um, I like the it was fact totally that forgettable. you had a poodle. No, dude, I don't remember a single thing about the Kalos region except that it had an Eiffel Tower. Oh, the professor was kind of hot. I still like Sycamore. And then Sun and Moon was a good region for the most part, but it was just a chain of islands, ultimately. Yeah, I really it's, like it. It's Hawaii. Thing. It's pretty. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Uh, and Sinnoh, I like Sinnoh. Uh, I like Sinnoh better than Hoenn, actually, uh, because it had so it had that... I'm a sucker for any region with snow. Yeah. I'm, I'm a sucker for anything with snow. Because you don't have to live in it anymore. But Johto was great because it had a lot of kind of history to it, it felt like, much like Kyoto does. Like, it had the the burned-out tower, right, where Ho-Oh was said to have left the world, and then when the bells tolled, Ho-Oh would return, and you could fight it. It had Ash standing on a mountain, looking out into the distance, or Red, I suppose, not Ash. He doesn't talk, does he? He just kind of creepy, as I recall. He does not talk. Uh, Yeah, and it, it was also, it, just artistically, it was a nice departure from Kanto. Yeah. And it, it really made Gold and Silver stand out and still makes Gold and Silver stand out, I think. I think there's probably a reason why, and you mentioned a couple of reasons, like Ash standing on a mountain and the burned out tower and all of that. Uh, when 
there's actually a creepypasta called Pokemon Lost Silver that takes place in the Johto region. And that's probably why, because he also had the unknown and the ruins with the unknown in them. And their radio, where you get this, the sounds of the unknown. Uh, all that was, you're right, it's very distinctive, a little creepy, but unforgettable for sure. It also had some of the best gym leaders. Um, we already mentioned Whitney. We had Morty, the first ghost type uh-huh. gym leader. But most importantly, we had Claire, who was freaking awesome. I'm trying to remember who Claire was. Who did she... Uh... Claire was the dragon type right. trainer, the eighth trainer... And the disciple of Lance, yes, the dragon trainer. And she, I mean, she was just cool, right? Yeah. I mean, she, uh, it, when you got to her, she was, it felt like a battle. It felt like a big deal that you were, you had arrived at the end of the road. It More so than almost any other one of the eighth gym leaders. Um, in the original game, you fought the leader of Team Rocket. <laughs> um <laughs> In this one, you fight the disciple of Claire. And then after that, it was kind of like, yeah, and also this guy is the eighth gym leader or mm-hmm. something. Doesn't really matter. So that was kind of the last time that it felt like a big deal when he got to the eighth gym, I think. Yeah, I think so. So so let's talk a little bit about the Pokemon. So the starters in Gold and Silver, they had a, uh, they had a tough... A tough time following yeah, up yeah. from the iconic Charmander, Bulbasaur, and Squirrel. That would be um, Cyndaquil and Totodile, a little crocodile guy, and uh, Chikorita, which was named the weakest Pokemon or the worst Pokemon starter yeah, ever. Useless Pokemon by Japan. Which is sad. Poor, I love Meganium. Chikorita was great. Meganium looks. Meganium looks amazing. Chikorita, I remember looking at the design saying, oh, God, I don't want that. But then, like, which happens a lot, you see the evolutions, and you're like, oh, man, why didn't I pick that? Yeah, no, I I really like, um, I, I like the Chikorita line a lot, and me- I've always been extremely fond of Meganium. I like it better than Totodile. For Alligator's not my favorite, but uh, Totodile, I love Totodile, and I loved him in the anime, too, because he was such a little sassy thing. For Alligator looks like it belongs in an episode of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It kind of does. And I'm saying this as someone who absolutely loves Leatherhead. He's my favorite Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles character ever, like in all the series. I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people like Cyndaquil the most. Yeah, Cyndaquil's pretty cool. And um, was Typhlosion is his name? Typhlosion is the ultimate evolution. Yeah, he's pretty cool. Yeah, he's pretty rad. Uh, A lot of people would say that Typhlosion is their favorite. But if you look at kind of the full range they they're in a they have a tough time because the red and blue start the red and blue starters obviously iconic are in everything mm-hmm. have mega evolutions and then ruby and sapphire um well, we have a top 20 uh top 20 pokemon list top 25 pokemon list going up this week and on that top 25 pokemon list all of the ruby and sapphire starters make it because, yeah. I mean, you had Blaziken, which, uh, Fighting Fire, everybody loved that one. Uh, Mudkip, the Meme Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Mudkip, the Meme Lord. Yes. And, Se- and Sceptile, you know, who uh, is just one of the cooler grass types, very distinctive. And they all is got Mega Evolution. 
Yeah, sorry, Trico was the first version of that. But Septile, I was just thinking about Septile because um, it's interesting. I was looking up the the description of Leviathan in the Bible, and he's described as having a, tr- a tail like a cedar, and that is Septile to a T. He literally has a cedar for a tail. I just oh. wondered if that was the inspiration, and I thought that was really cool. And Gold and Silver has better starters than, I don't know, the starters from X and Y or, uh, you know, a black and white, but... Yeah, starters are just okay, ultimately. Well, as you say, they had a really tough act to follow, um, but they're pretty cool for who they are. I'd give them all hugs. But the uh, the, the remainder of the Pokedex was, for the most part, really good. Uh, do you remember the first one that kind of appeared that was kind of rumored, Nadia? Oh, that was Mega uh, Pika Blue, a.k.a. Meryl. Yes, everybody thought that that was going to be like a water-type Pikachu, but in fact, that was not the case. Yeah, no, we were a little bit off on that one. Yep. Uh, but there were a whole bunch of really good ones that ultimately uh, popped up. Of course, another one that's really famous is Togepi, which was one of the first ones to appear mm-hmm. in uh, the anime. Yeah, that's right. Other than Ho-Oh, of course. There's Amfaros, the electric she- the shaved electric sheep. <laughs> I love Amfaros. I love Maripa. I just love that whole line. It's one of my favorites. Uh, we had evolutions of some of them, uh, some of the last generation ones, including mm-hmm. Umbreon and Espeon. Uh, yeah, who, I love Umbreon. I think a lot of people love every Umbreon. I think uh, Espeon and Umbreon might be more popular even than the original three eons. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, I like Umbreon a little better than Espeon because Espeon's tail freaks me out. I'm like, what if really? someone pulls those apart? Yeah. Why does... Oh, yeah. T- t- oh, okay. There were those... <laughs> There's Wobbuffet. Oh, he was made famous by the anime as well. Wobbuffet. There was Shizor, which everybody wanted to be good and was oh, not Shizor. good until finally getting Bullet Punch in Pokemon Platinum two generations later. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Caesar because I love Scyther. I just love Scyther's design and just changing Scyther's design to me is just an offense. It uh, it introduced one of the most fearsome pairings in Pokemon history, and that would be Skarmory and Blissey, which would torment oh. people for multiple generations. Oh, and God. I, yeah, just thinking about that. And he, he, I love Skarmory's design, one of my favorite Pokemon of all time. But, God, combining that with Blissey, what a nightmare. Some of the Pokemon that were introduced in Gen 2 did not really come into their own until Gen 4. Mm-hmm. Um the Mamoswine is a good example of a Pokemon that really didn't become viable until, or even that interesting until Gen 4. Right. Uh, Gligar did not really become viable or interesting until Gen 4, thanks to uh, when it became Gliscor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where Pokemon Gold and Silver really stands out, I think, in terms of its Pokedex is its legendaries. Yes. Which, it has the three dogs, which, uh, for me, for my, they're my favorite legendary trio, bar, bar none. They're, I just love them. They're great. Wolf, wolf. Yeah, they are pretty great, especially Sequin. Yeah, I got an, Ent- uh, Suicune's definitely my favorite. I got an Entei and a Raikou just recently. Yeah, I got a Raikou myself in Pokemon Go. Uh, and it also gave us, uh, gave the world Tyranitar, thus tormenting people. Uh, in the following generation, Tyranitar would get the ability to whip up a sandstorm, which oh. would torment everybody. Yes. Was, was Salamence? No, Salamence was Gen 3, wasn't he? Because I love Salamence. Yes. Okay. Salamence and Metagross were Gen 3. Okay, I guess but, Salamence is great. 
Uh, Lugia and Ho'oh and Celebi were all great in their own way as well, because Lugia and Ho'oh were, of course, the cover legendaries. Ho'oh was the bird, Mm -hmm. the phoenix-like bird that Ash saw flying overhead. Lugia was, uh, I mean... How do you even describe it? It looks really cool. That's what I'll say. You're right. It's a very interesting design, like kind of a water dinosaur, but also flies with these big oversized hands. It's a very recognizable design. I always liked Lugia over Ho'o myself. And then, of course, Celebi, which was really hard for Americans to get. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it never even came out here. I don't remember anything. Like, I think we had a chance to get Mew, but we never had a chance to get Celebi. Yeah, we got Mew. It was distributed at events. Right. But Celebi was, you had to unlock the event to be able to go catch it in the forest. Mm-hmm. So the data was on the game, and it was available in Japan, but it was really hard for Americans to get hold of it. Uh, I think I've told this story before. When I was in college, I mailed my copy of um, I mailed my copy of Ruby to like England or something so that a friend of mine on the internet who had lived in Japan could give me a Japanese celebi. Oh, wow. You live dangerously, Kat. I mean, I didn't have anything on it. And I, I by that time, I had transferred oh, okay. everything. But I think that the gold and silver Pokedex was the last time that we had the really classic looks that you would associate with red and blue. Mm-hmm. Once you got into Ruby and Sapphire, the artists uh, started to change, and you got some more esoteric designs, I want to say. Yeah, and also um, probably just take a minute to give a shout-out to the uh, prototype Pokemon from Gold and Silver that showed up at that Space World 1997 show. People just fell in love with all of those. Like the screaming ditto. <laughs> uh, Gold and Silver also introduced two new types, oh, which is Psychic and no, not Dark. Psychic. Which was in direct response, or not Psychic and Dark, Steel and Dark, which was in direct response to how dominant Psychic types were (laughs) in Red and Blue, which was their own darn fault, because the only thing that could take down a frickin' Psychic type were bug types, and bug types didn't have any good attacks. To make a bug type survive long enough to actually be able to take on some of the late-game Psychics just wasn't happening. And the only Ghost-type attack was Lick, which was very weak. So literally nothing was strong against Psychic. Yeah, like, just trot out the the Mewtwo and the battle was over. So uh, Gold and Silver added a whole bunch of stuff. They had the Steel-type and Dark-type. Dark-type totally nullified uh, Psychic-type and was strong against it. Steel-type was strong against it, became the premier defensive-type. It was so strong that uh, eventually they had to actually nerf it a bit in later generations. Um and make it not as strong against certain things. Mm-hmm. And uh, they also wanted to buff up fire fighting types, so they had fighting be strong against both dark and steel. And actually, they might have even been a little too successful because fighting types became extremely strong thereafter. Yeah, they did. Or at, at least fighting type attacks did, right. uh, as did fire type attacks, because fire type was strong against steel attacks. And uh, so that changed the balance of the game for the most part. Um Mechanically, they added a lot of really interesting things. We already mentioned the day-night cycle. They had, if you would show up, and they also had a clock, so like mm-hmm. different events would happen on different days of the week. That blew my mind back in the day. Oh, this was really cool. So like different vendors would only show up on certain days. Um, they, of course, introduced eggs, so you could breed your Pokemon for the first time, which R. was R. a big dittos. deal. <laughs> 
Well, what do you mean, R.I.P. Ditto? Oh, uh, just everyone like breeds everything to poor Ditto, so they yep. get their eggs that they this want. This was this was before the time of the EVs and the IVs. Oh, okay. the The way that the stats worked was different. Personalities and traits did not exist, so you didn't have to worry about those being inherited. Though certain Pokemon were still stronger than others when they were hatched, mm. it was just it was different. But a lot of what we know of as Pokemon today really took shape with gold and silver i would yeah, say absolutely it's a very iconic game games i would say so and uh, I th- but of course i mean we would be remiss if we didn't talk about how freaking cool and we always pick best moments mm-hmm. when we do these segments i mean the best moment had to be the first time you stepped off the train into kanto yeah. right yeah, absolutely. Although now that you mentioned, or when you mentioned uh, just uh, Red standing on that mountain, it kind of that made me feel a little bit chilly. I mean, that was a really cool moment as yeah. well. But I mean, the fact that you got to fight all of the gym leaders from the previous games yeah. again—that there was that sense of continuity. I don't. I'm still. You could say I'm still chasing the dragon when it comes to Pokemon. <laughs> I'm still. To this day, I feel like I'm still chasing the thrill of the moment that I, the first time I stepped off the train and I was in Kanto, but it was a couple years later. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. But I kind of had that moment already uh, bringing up Dragon Quest again when I play Dragon Quest 3 and you go from that overworld down to Alfgar from the first game and it's all, almost to scale. So, yeah, that's kind of what it, I know what it feels like, put it that way. The funny thing is that later games in the series, like the Battle Frontier, I I would say is probably better than that mm-hmm. uh, because battle the Battle Frontier had really interesting challenges and multiple gym leaders. Uh, the Pokemon World Tournament had the thrill of nostalgia. Uh, if you play uh, Black and White Unova, like half the friggin' region is blocked yeah. off, and it's bigger yeah. when you go there. But the point is though. It's a surprise. It's the delight. Mm-hmm. It's the realization that, oh my God, I'm back. I'm back in Kanto, baby. And I'm going to kill you all. And then it was really cool to see like how things had changed. Like the fact that the gym on Cinnabar Island was destroyed. Um, or the, to find out that Blue was a gym leader now. Or to mm-hmm. wonder whatever happened to Red. Or to see that Team Rocket was back in action. It, it just, mm-hmm. it felt like a wonderful extension of the original game. And I just, it really made it. Of course, as a result, Johto was smaller and you had to be at a much lower level to actually complete the original run of the eight badges. But it was yeah, it was perfect. It really was perfect. It was, it was amazing. But uh, I mean, uh, several years later, a very well-received remake came out, HeartGold and SoulSilver. I would say that HeartGold and SoulSilver might be the most beloved of all the remakes. Yeah, I think so. Um, well, we're talking about like a great remake of a great game. It's hard to go wrong. Yeah, I always thought it was a little slow myself. <laughs> and I, I wasn't all the way down with the soundtrack. I thought the soundtrack... I, I thought the soundtrack on the G- Game Boy Color was kind of beyond reproach. Was it the game? It wasn't a Game Boy Color game, though, was it? It was a DS. Uh, the Crystal was a Game Boy Color. Or, sorry. The soundtrack on the Game Boy version of Gold oh. and Silver was beyond reproach. Okay. Yes. Whereas it didn't sound as good on the DS. I, I thought the remake soundtrack okay, wasn't yeah. that great, unfortunately. That's 
You did have the Pokewalker, though. That's really the precursor to the, uh, God, to Pokemon Go, I suppose. I thought I had the best gym theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but no, uh, Pokemon Heart, Heart Gold and Soul Silver had the Pokewalker, which was, <laughs> everybody loved the dang Pokewalker. Everyone loved the po- I remember people putting it in their dryers to try to cheat on the... <laughs> and of course, that ended exactly how you think it would end. Yeah, not well. The Pokemon no, and that thing well. is dead. It's gone forever. Yeah. <laughs> it is cooked. You killed Pikachu. Speaking of Pikachu, I, I mean, they had baby versions of Pokemon in this one for the first time. Oh, that's right, Pichu. Yes, I got a yeah. Pichu, by the way, in Pokemon Go. I was very proud. And not just a Pichu, a Pichu with, like, the sunglasses and the hat. Oh, I got one of those. I named it Nan because it looks like my grandmother, like, you know, just kind of wearing a sun hat. <laughs> All right, so... We've talked a lot about Pokemon Go or Pokemon Gold and Silver. Final thoughts on its legacy? Uh, yeah, I think it's the the perfect choice for you know the inevitable Pokemon selection for our top twenty five RPGs because it, as I said before, it really refined Pokemon. And uh, if that was going to be the last hurrah for the series, it it would have gone out on a pretty fantastic note. I think it was basically perfect. Not only did yeah. it bring back Kanto. It added so much. It built on the mechanics so well. It had so many good Pokemon. Yeah. Uh, I would. Everybody always says, oh, the original 151 was the best and there's, everything else sucks. But, I mean, come on. Look at look at the stuff like Suicune and, and Raikou and Celebi and Tyranitar. And they're all pretty iconic in their own right, I would say. Yeah. It, it it fleshed out the typings, so it was much better than the original Red and Blue. It, it built on it on, in every possible respect. And then also, the fact that it connected to the original game was just friggin' brilliant. The fact that I could bring my monsters from the original Red and Blue over to Gold and Silver, that was mind-blowing at the time. Yeah. With the time machine, that was awesome. Yeah, it really was. Um, even like just as an example, like for video games in general, it was one of the most perfect sequels ever made. Yes, and if you and if you look back on those games, like so many Ruby and Sapphire onward, those games feel iterative. Mm-hmm. Like it's like trying to go back to an MMORPG that's on a different patch version, right? To pick up these older games, um, because each of the games build on the other. But because Gold and Silver was kind of the last hurrah for that ver- variant for that generation, it. Uh, it feels like it's a game that stands on its own and that you can just play. Right. Like, yeah, that's, you can buy it on the 3DS. You can buy gold and silver on the 3DS along with red and blue and everything. I, I would pick up crystal myself. That's the best one I would say. And out of all of the Pokemon games, like I would have a hard time going back to black two and white two, as much as I love it. I would have a hard time going back to Emerald but I would not have a hard time going back to gold and silver because it's so perfectly placed in time. So that's number 14 on our top 25 RPG list, Pokemon gold and silver. All right, Nadia, as always, we do our mailbag. And last week we interviewed RPG legend, Brian Fargo, who had a little bit of a Mia culpa on the Nintendo Switch. And we also uh, wondered, where the heck is Final Fantasy VIII? 
on the Nintendo Switch because they announced <laughs> pretty much freaking every other Final Fantasy. And Johnny Boy 507 yeah. says, so what do you think? Are Final Fantasy 1 through 6 going to be available a la carte at some point? Maybe a part of the Nintendo Online eventually? Maybe as a collected edition like Mega Man? I, I could see it as a collected edition, but I think it's more likely that they're a la carte. Uh, yeah, I could see... Um... I can see either or. I don't care what they give me as long as they don't give me those those mobile graphics. You know, the Vaseline ones where, like, Locke looks like he has a rack and just it's just horrible. Yeah, they're going to do it, though. It'll be a bummer. Oh, sorry. I was going to say they um, they responded when people, like, called them out on uh, just putting Chrono Trigger Mobile on Steam. I mean, they've really gone back and made it a game worth buying. Yeah, they have, but... Uh, with the Final Fantasy games, they've already got uh, 4, 5, and 6 properly ruined, so you might as well just port those ones. <laughs> I think 4 is still okay. M. Ganai says, Hoping for remakes of 5 and 6, hopefully not with the Dissidia designs. Decided those are not my bags. <laughs> I would not hold your breath for remakes of 5 and 6. Uh, Cochambra says, Really interesting episode, especially the Brian Fargo interview. I hope both the Bard's Tale 4 and the Switch port of Wasteland 2 sell enough copies so that we can get more games from these guys in the future. I agree. In fact, Brian Fargo said that if he could sell something on the order of like 2 million copies of, uh, I think, Bard's Tale 4, he said he was going to try and back, buy back Interplay. <laughs> Do it, man. You can. I believe in you. Talking about classic RPG brands right there. <clears throat> Metman Master mm. says, my opinion, Final Fantasy VIII not being on Switch has a lot to do with the game not having a pre-existing PS4 or mobile port to work with. Of course, then the question goes to why it simply doesn't have a pre-existing PS4 or mobile port. Well, I think the answer is simply that it's a bigger project to undertake than 7, and Square Enix didn't save the original assets like with 9. Also, FF9 kind of took priority on the port front because it didn't even have one lousy PC version for over a decade. Not, yeah, You're not wrong. It was yeah, pretty hard to get true. hold of. Yeah. Rider Kicker is uh, pointing his finger at you, Nadia. Oh dear. Nadia doesn't have FF10 on the Vita. This must be amended. I'm just get it on something. Get it. Wait for the Switch version to come out. I'm gonna. Yeah, I'll get it on the Switch. Don't worry. I'll grab. I'll grab it on the Switch along with Final Fantasy VII. I've started FF7 about four times in the 14 years since I 100%ed it, and I always give up at Shinra HQ until I bought it on PS4, and now we have not progressed past getting out of Midgar. Still have to finish <laughs> FF9 though. <laughs> Yeah, I, I totally understand that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I always finish uh, FF7 when I play it. it the, well, actually, no, I get to the I get to the third disc, and then I just kind of say, okay, I've had fun, goodbye. The River Marquis says, I actually think 8 is one of the worst Final Fantasy games. No, you're breaking my heart. Ooh. As far as the PS1 versus NES RPG goes, it's not even a contest. The PS1 had some amazing RPGs, but most of them have not aged very well, both in terms of graphics and gameplay. Also, for every great RPG on the PS1, there's an even better as well as timeless predecessor on the SNES. I'm not going to disagree with that. And finally, uh, Stuart Shearer 63 says, FF8 was my favorite game back when I was an angsty teenager. Then I grew up. And upon returning to it on my PSP, found I couldn't really relate to it anymore. I never could Aww. relate to it. I just thought it was a fun game. Do I, I have to relate, relate to everything? To, I kind of related to Laguna. Well... I don't know, I'm not as stupid as him, but I, I liked Laguna. He was always one of my favorite RPG pro tags, and I'm kind of sad that he wasn't the main focus of Final Fantasy VIII. I always related to Selfie, because she was a goof. And she liked trains. <laughs> she wanted to sing the train song. She was very I happy. I the train song. I remember the train song, yes. I do, and I now do her like name Selfie. is ruined because Selfie. 
Oh God! Oh, oh, right. Ah, crap. No, sorry. I hate it. (laughs) Sorry. I like trains too, though. To be honest with you. Axel Will Guide is the U.S. Gamer Podcast. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow me on social media at the underscore catbot, Nadia at Nadia Oxford. I was on a couple of things recently. I appeared on Kind of Funny Games Daily. If you enjoy listening to that, I listened to the. I was on Jeff Kanata's DLC podcast. You should go check that out. Uh, as always, amazing things on the site. Nadia, you wrote about how Dragon Quest XI is an emotional raw, which makes its post-game that much sweeter. Yeah, you haven't played uh, much of Final Fantasy, or at least not enough of Final Fantasy XI for me to really get into it, and of course it's a massive spoiler, but uh, yeah, we've talked in the past about how Dragon Quest goes hard, and Dragon Quest XI goes very hard, but it also gives you, that makes the post-game even better. And I'm not going to like kind of say more than that, unless you've read the Unless you've played the game, go ahead and read the article. Please do. But uh, otherwise, come back to it once you've once you finish the game. Uh, Doc Burford wrote about how Destiny for Two Forsaken did Cade Six dirty, which uh, he he feels very emotional about this. So I would go check it out. Unfortunately, it's all like just kind of jibber jabber to me. I love Doc's writing though, so yes, go check it out. Uh, Cade Six was a really fun character. It was pretty sad. Um, and, of course, there's the PlayStation Classic wish list, the games we want for the final 15 spots. Uh, some of the games that we mentioned on this uh, uh, on this podcast should be appearing in them, so go check that out on the site. In the meantime, we'll be back next week, as always. And until then, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening. Until next time, happy adventuring.